In October, I'm scheduled to host, perhaps, my last Christchurch pilgrimage to Israel-Palestine, what Christians have traditionally called the Holy Land. While there's real cost in terms of time and dollars for sure, I've long been a strong encourager for every follower after the way of Jesus to join one of these adventures at some point in their lives, if at all possible. We don't package these trips as religious tourism, but as a deep spiritual engagement with the land, geography, and people from which our religious tradition sprang. And we do it as a spiritual team, taking time to reflect and process with one another each day's events, challenges, and learnings. I have a vivid memory of the opening day of one of our trips that began in the early morning light by taking a boat out onto the mist-shrouded water of the Sea of Galilee. Once positioned a good distance from shore, the captain cut the engines, and we were able to sit silently for a long, long while, contemplating the many events that comprise much of the gospel accounts of the life and times of Jesus and his friends, so many of whom were fishermen on that very sea. Afterwards, we visited several of the traditional locations associated with some of the well-known stories from the Galilee region, like the Sermon on the Mount and the feeding of the 5,000. And, too, the site associated with the story you heard Violet just read, the wonderfully evocative tale of the disciples' encounter with the resurrected Jesus at the break of day while sharing a bit of breakfast over a campfire. We read that story quietly, and then standing in a circle just at the water's edge, we shared communion. An excellent beginning to a richly challenging experience of dynamic Christian community. That we organize these trips as a small, intentional band of pilgrims accounts for much of the richness of the experience. Now, one could do this alone, of course, and learn a great deal of history and get some great photos. Or one could sort of tag along with the group and rack up a diary of interesting sites visited to a growing roster of world travel. Nothing wrong with any of that, of course. But establishing a short-term intentional community of friends is an important element of the spiritual dynamism catalyzed by our pilgrimages. And actually, that's been a generative idea at Christ Church over my years here. Whether it's one of our longer-term studies or group experiences, or our work in Washington Heights, or just keeping our doors open at Park and 60th seven days a week as spiritual sanctuary, we've been committed to learning what it means to throw in together for the purpose of nurturing our spiritual maturity while advancing the cause of love in the world. Pandemic interrupted this big time and we're on a slow walk back into the brave new world post COVID. But it's now worth recalling the old African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. That's been my idea behind my time at Christ Church. Simple, basic, obvious. But then it seems a really elusive goal for so many people today who have found themselves more isolated than ever from communities of meaning making. 
And how that now translates into virtual world is a work in progress. How does going far together translate in this space? It's an intriguing question. I've often heard people report how much they yearn for authentic community in their lives, how spiritually and personally important this is for them. And when they say this, I mostly believe them. But then I've also observed how the content and organization of their lives mitigates their ever finding the very thing they say they crave. And then often, the more stuff that's accumulated, you know, relationships, things, experiences, jobs, geographies, and so on, the harder it can become to maintain disciplines around the things they say really matter most of all. This issue is especially apparent in today's culture. No matter the arena under consideration, whether we're talking friendship, marriage, family, or any purposeful endeavor involving or impacting others, going far together requires a series of choices and the development of habits that support those choices, both of which generally run counter to running a fast race to some fanciful, if otherwise seemingly, compelling end. How is a life of deep purpose and meaning fashioned anyway? How is it done? This seems an especially poignant consideration for the talented, dynamic, energetic, motivated, goal-oriented, adventurous types who make their way to New York City. When I first arrived years ago, 34, 35 years ago, an older member, well, at least older than I was by a decade or two, referred to New York as a city of finishers. And by that, he meant those that strove hard, overcoming many obstacles to advance on their dreams. They were smart and driven and competitive, creative. The city attracted that energy, he reported, sort of as a warning of what I would find here. Well, that seemed a compelling idea, one that ratified my own perception and massaged my ego. After all, I was now among that inspired group. But what about habits of the heart, mind, and soul that led to advancing on the things that mattered most of all? What about those things. It seemed a wide open field, really. A city filled with a glut of individual aspiration for a thousand ends. But what of rich, dynamic human community for all the achievers? What of the going far together rather than the going fast alone? And man, it's very clear today that the gospel message has never been more relevant. Let's review the story we tell. Jesus' disciples had little real understanding of what lay ahead for them as they made their way from Galilee to Jerusalem in those last days. The charismatic Jesus was leading them on some great adventure to a very bright future. And as they traveled along, our stories tell us they bickered among themselves as to who was the greatest among them, who would have the choice place next to Jesus when he came into his power, who'd wind up with the most goodies. Typical human preoccupations. It all came to pieces at the end once they entered their version of the city of finishers. Well, anyway, it sure seemed to finish off Jesus and all of their dreams with him. 
At the very bitter conclusion of their journey, the erstwhile group leader, Peter, managed to deny he ever met the man. Not that we could really blame him, I suppose. He was completely unprepared for the crushing crucifixion climax. But then, the startling, unbelievable reversal, something they called resurrection, something utterly unexpected, difficult really to make sense of. It was literally beyond belief. And yet, profoundly, that is mysteriously, real. And then several looming questions. What did this mean? Where should they go? What should they do? And as a kind of epilogue to the incredible story, John tells us the disciples made their way back to Galilee, no doubt physically and emotionally spent and confused. So they went home together, a small intentional band of friends having journeyed on an astonishing pilgrimage. As John tells the story, we could imagine a poignant silence holds sway when Peter blurts out that he's going fishing. He fell back to what he had always done. He went back to the work he knew best, not really knowing what else to do. And so they all go fishing. And while engaged in the most common of activities early in the morning, Jesus joins them for breakfast on the shore of the sea. It's a beautiful, tender image. So small scale, so intimate, personal. How does resurrection manifest? Within a group of friends sharing a meal. And in that setting, they learn what comes next. First, forgiveness and reconciliation. Three times Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. Three times Peter says yes, and the spell of his betrayal is broken. Friendship is restored. And from this reconciliation, a mission is forged in the manner of Jesus' love, who then says to them, follow me. And by this, I think that what's meant is this. Follow me in my way of love. And friends, I want to point out here that as the story is told, he did not say, okay, time to subscribe to a set of neat propositions about me, or time to establish a creed about all of this. No. He said, follow me. And this following inevitably, inevitably leads to an investment in the habits of the heart, mind, and soul that reflect the same love Jesus lived. A radical love that broke down all barriers among people, a love that excluded no one, a love pregnant with forgiveness and reconciliation for any and all everywhere. Experience reveals we cannot live this love in isolation. Any substantial, meaningful definition of love involves others as both subjects and objects. Love can only find its full consummation in going far together, period. Together, period. 
So we might say that Christ Church is something of a boot camp for learning about these things, for learning how to embody this same love. Our strength and vitality directly reflect the strength of the intentions of those who choose to throw in together. It reflects the vigor within the habits of heart, mind, and soul that we all bring together. It shows up in the commitment to worshiping together, learning together, struggling to grow up together, working together. In short, taking the long spiritual pilgrimage together because we know it's the only way to really go far.